Hello, Bible Reset listeners. Our team is taking a little bit of time off this week to rest and rejuvenate as summer wraps up. So this week we've put together kind of a supercut of three of our very earliest episodes from two years ago. These three episodes explore what we believe is one of the most overlooked factors in Bible engagement, which is the physical formatting of the Bible itself. So many people concerned with Bible literacy talk about forming good reading habits, like picking a certain time of day to read, or trying to journal through your reading, all of which are good things, but they neglect to even think about the huge barriers that are in place when our Bibles look more like dictionaries. So we've cut and put together some segments of these early episodes that focus on the question of the Bible's physical appearance. We discuss how chapters and verses came along and the massive impact they have on the reading experience, plus talk through how readers' Bibles like Immerse not only make for a more enjoyable read, but actually are more authentic to what the Bible truly is. This episode is a little choppy in spots, so you'll have to forgive us, but we hope you enjoy it. If you've been around our work, you know that we make a big deal about the Bible's form and how it can either help or hinder our ability to read. Most of us have mental images of what a quote-unquote regular Bible should look like. And if we're objective about it, the images are probably closer to something like a textbook or a dictionary than something that's made for reading. Our expectations of the Bible's format are actually conditioned by the Bible that we've inherited over the last 500 years or so. But it wasn't always this way, and it's worth taking a look at the Bible's history and the not inconsequential ways that it's been shaped by human hands. Yeah, it's interesting, Alex. I think it's a thing that we don't often think about, the fact that the Bible is a cultural artifact. I mean, the Bible is a thing that we've created. Any Bible that anybody has was created by somebody, and it has taken a particular shape and form in a certain kind of presentation. And this is all involving human decision-making. So when we purchase a Bible, we're buying a product that has been shaped and formed by human hands. And all kinds of decisions have been made in the design arena, in the formatting area. Paul, you and I were both Bible publishers. And so we know what it was like to make the decisions that shape particular Bibles. Uh, what were some of the main ones that you remember? Yeah, I mean, I remember when I first came into the position that one of the startling things for me was having teams of people that were working on creating Bibles. And when it would get down to the design format of an actual page, they would come across my desk for approval. And it became very clear to me that when I looked at these designs, that oftentimes the design was led to enhance and point to the note system either by shading the area or putting some sort of fancy design about it. And so the text was really given secondary place. And it was a perfect example that every day in our shop, decisions were being made about what to do with the Bible. It's interesting if you think about the history of the Bible, the Bible hasn't always looked like what we know as a Bible today. And it's another thing for us to keep in mind is that we have freedom to design Bibles the way we want for whatever goals we want. As we go through the history of the Bible, we find that it's actually late in the game that we come to what we know as the modern Bible. And there was a particular set of decisions made in the production of what we would call a Bible today that came, as I said, later in the Bible's history 
And those decisions were made for reasons that don't always align with great readability or engagement. Yeah, I think of of all the changes that have taken place, uh, the the most consequential, really the colossal change was the addition of chapters and verses. And really two men were responsible for these changes. We might call them the fathers of the modern Bible. The first one was Stephen Langton, who was an English church leader. He was a professor at the University of Paris. He was a prolific Bible scholar and a, pro- a prolific writer of commentaries, primarily Old Testament commentaries. And he became uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury. And at about 1200 AD, he invented almost single-handedly the chapter system to help readers of his commentaries cr- quickly reference his texts. Which is late, right? 1200 AD? Like the Bible's been a certain way for a long time, over a thousand years. And and then all of a sudden this this innovation comes into play. Yeah, it starts to make you wonder, how did people possibly use these Bibles that didn't even have chapter breaks within them? Right. And we we consider that so essential. Yeah. And, and it's worth just reiterating that he created this chapter system to aid in a reference work that he was that he was making. It wasn't anything tied to the natural literature of the Bible or anything like that. It was specifically just kind of breaking books up into uniform chunks. Right. So that he could easily point people to a, a certain chunk of a book that he would be writing his commentary on. Yeah, and that's that's very close to the goal of what we want to get at today is that the design decisions for the Bible itself, the actual presentation of the Bible, um, those decisions reflect certain goals. And so what what we notice and what has been kind of coming to, to light more and more lately is that the addition of chapters and verses created problems in addition to creating this very easy to look up reference work. So it was great for the goal of finding a passage of the Bible more quickly for his commentaries. But but you think back, well, wait a minute, what was lost in that decision? And so as we think about what the Bible is, it's a collection of books that are different kinds of literature. So what happened to the literature of the Bible when we added chapter breaks? Well, it obliterated that literature because suddenly the whole book, which is really a collection of books in the Bible, they all get divided into sections that are roughly the same length because that was the goal. It wasn't like, let's read carefully. What are the natural literary sections of this book? Where's a place where we can make a break so these all come out to be roughly the same length for a commentary system? And they didn't pay attention to the breaks. I always find it pretty humorous that the very first chapter break in the Bible, Genesis chapter two, comes at exactly the wrong place. I mean, it was the very first break and they couldn't get that one right. It it is fun, right? There's two creation stories and the chapter break comes before just a little bit, a few lines before the end of the first creation story. I'm like, wait, if you're reading the text, why would you do that? Why would you put the break there if you're reading what you're what you're adding the numbers to? And so it's just funny. And that, of course, happens other places. Sometimes the breaks are in appropriate place. But either way, it makes the Bible look like a a collection of books that have these sections all of this length, kind of like an encyclopedia of articles, when actually some of the, the sections are much longer. Some can be shorter. And those actual natural literary um, units are broken up because the chapters come in in wrong places. Yeah. And you, you know, if you're reading through the Bible and you see these chapter numbers, any other book 
in your entire life that you read, <laughs> chapters are normal places to stop, right? Like authors yes. write their books and structure them around chapters. And so you think, okay, you know, I'm reading Harry Potter and I finished the chapter and that, that makes sense to stop there because, you know, the next chapter is going to be about something new, that sort of thing. Uh, but that's, that's not how the Bible works. And so it's this false impression that we give to people that, hey, this chapter number is actually a, a good place to stop for the day. So what about verses? Where did, where did verses come from? I always grew up kind of thinking that chapters and verses went together like burgers and fries or something. <laughs> um, but, but they're actually verses were 300 years younger, approximately than than chapters. So the chapter system was around for a while. And verses were only invented because of uh, a French printer and a classical scholar named Robert Asten. And he was working on a Bible concordance. So if you're not familiar with concordances, it's another reference manual type of tool that's primarily used for looking up where specific words appear in scripture. So if I needed to find everywhere where, um, you know, the word grace, for example, is used, I could look it up in a concordance and find a list of references. So understandably, Asten needed a system with even more precision than Langdon's chapter system, which, you know, would take several paragraphs at a time, for example. He needed people to be able to zoom in and, and immediately find a specific word. And so he used Langdon's chapter system as a framework to work within, but then created a new subset of numbers within that, uh, which, which he called verses. But I think it's worth saying that chapters and verses do serve a helpful purpose for looking things up, right? And they could have remained a niche resource for scholars and people writing things like con commentaries and concordances. But at some point along the way, somebody decided that they needed to become a standard element in every single Bible. And this was close to the time of the printing press. And so we were just off to the races um, with with chapter and verse Bibles. Yeah, exactly. They got incorporated to every edition that followed this time period. So it became the new thing. Every Bible that gets printed on these new printing presses now is going to use this innovative new system of chapter and verses put together for the very first time. And so every Bible that's, you know, there's all these new vernacular translations happening in this same period. And every single one of them incorporates this new system. Uh, it's very interesting. Uh, there's a church historian at Yale named Yaroslav Pelikan who wrote a book called The Bible of the Reformation and the Reformation of the Bible. And he hmm. says, one of the things that the innovation of verses in particular did was it changed absolutely what people thought they were supposed to do with the Bible. He says proof texting was born in this Reformation era Bible that people discovered for the first time. You could you could try to find a doctrine in the Bible and then list the verses that proved this doctrine. And of course, this is the time of the great Protestant Catholic debate and divide happening. And so there was a lot of arguing about Bible texts and a chapter and verse Bible was perfect for these kinds of arguments. Um, so long as you can take these verses out of their context and just list them as a specific reference without reference to the material around them, which is of course, one of the big problems. So you're, you're proof texting, but the thing that a proof texting system never does is take into account the context of every single one of those references. So you say, I want to teach justification by faith, and you list chapter and verse where all this is taught, but you don't bother in each one of those cases to say, oh, this was in Paul's letter, and he was making this bigger point. Here's where this sentence came into his bigger argument. That doesn't happen when you're proof texting. So 
the introduction of verses isolated statements from the Bible out of their context, historical, literary, cultural, anything else that's happening. You just read a statement and it, it looks for all the world like it's meant to, meant to be read by itself. And that's what verses have done. And that's ever since the introduction of this innovation to the Bible format, we've oftentimes just thought, this is what the Bible is for. It's broken up into these little pieces so I can find the best pieces for what I want. A little verse to encourage me, a verse to argue with somebody, a verse to reinforce some point I already believe. But we read the Bible as a collection of verses rather than reading it as a collection of whole books. Yeah, I think I think the word kind of to start, you know, wrapping this up a little bit, I think the word that describes the modern Bible is that it's an excellent reference tool. And yep. that's that's not surprising because the two men who created it, that's what their goal was in the case of both chapters and verses. And I think the main point that we can kind of draw from this brief history of the modern Bible is that what we designed the Bible for is what it will be used for. So if we design the Bible to be used like a reference book, where you just look up a thing, get some additional help, and then jump back out again, or jump to different places in the Bible, that's what the Bible will be used for by people. But what if you designed the Bible for something else, for what's been lost in the Bible that God originally gave us? So I think the introduction of the modern reference Bible led us down a certain path that people think this is the best thing you can do with the Bible or the only thing you can do with the Bible, which was not designed to be a reader's Bible. Um, And I think that's the question that we have before us now is, is there a different possibility for a new and better future? Because one thing the the reference and the the, you know, the information we're learning about research on what people do with the Bible is they are not reading it and they're not understanding the big picture. You may not know Chris, but if you have one of our immersed Bibles, you've actually directly interacted with his work. Chris's fingerprints are all over the design and the content and even the philosophy behind Immerse. In some of our previous episodes, we've talked about the deficiencies of the modern Bible and how it makes reading difficult, how it hides the natural structure of books and often misleads the reader. Chris is a longtime friend of ours, and he's been a key part in our work of pioneering the new category of readers' Bibles. Today, Paul and I are going to interview Chris and Glenn and ask them to unpack the story of their work 15 years ago to create the books of the Bible, which was kind of version 1.0 of the concept which led to the creation of Immerse. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be with you guys again. So, so Glenn, you know, Chris has just talked about his, his background and his discovery almost of, of the Bible as literature. So can you talk about how the two of you met? So I was the publisher of the best-selling English language Bible in the world. And I was seeing sales of Bibles grow exponentially at our nonprofit publishing company. And I thought, this is great. What could be better? And then I heard George Barna speak once about how Bibles are ubiquitous across our land, but there is a connection problem. People have Bibles, but don't read them. They don't know them, and they're not living their lives by what they discover 
from the wisdom of the scriptures. And I thought, this is no good. I don't want to get to the end of my time as a publisher and discover that I've sold a lot of Bibles, but that people aren't reading them, aren't engaging them. And so we started experimenting. I didn't, I didn't have the knowledge to know what we were doing, but we knew we had to do something. So we did. We just started experimenting with the text. We thought, you know, there's lots of reasons maybe why people aren't reading the Bible. But we looked at this format of the modern reference Bible and said, this is surely not an aid to reading the way we have formatted this text. So we started taking stuff out. We kind of asked the question, what's sacred, what isn't? And we were experimenting with things. So I was at a church teaching a summer class with my friends, Jim and Judy Oricker. And we had formatted the stories of King David into a single book, part of this series we did called People of the Book. There were no chapters, no verses. We didn't know anything about literary structures. So we just kind of read the text and said, yeah, this kind of feels like a chapter break. Let's put a chapter break there. Kind of developed the whole thing into 10 chapters. And I was leading that study, kind of a book club, really, over the summer. And Judy Oricker, a friend here in Colorado Springs, said, you know, we have a friend, Chris Smith, who is doing the work that you're trying to do. And I don't think she used these words, but the implication was he actually knows what he's doing. Right. So she gives <laughs> me that she gives me this link to his book that he had published on the Internet. And I looked that up and I can still remember reading this material and saying, this is exactly what we've needed. We've been struggling in the direction of something like this, not really knowing how to do it well with real integrity for what the scriptures inherently are. But Chris has done this work. So we reached out to Chris. And from that point on, it was a different ballgame altogether. Suddenly, we were not just taking things out of the Bible so that it was easier to read. We were discovering with Chris's help what the Bible actually was, book by book. And so then from that point on, we're off and running. Glenn, you're a Bible publisher with an appetite to try new things, and now you're paired with a scholar who has a vision for an alternative version for the Bible. Uh, tell us more about how you met up and how the partnership developed around this vision. Yeah, so when I reached out to Chris and uh, we started talking and I became convinced we had to bring him on as a consultant. So we started a group at the nonprofit called the Bible Design Group. And this was a group of the editors who had reported to me in our other product development for Bible resources and some other folks um, on our team. And Chris came and we began what turned into a four-year journey developing what this new Bible would be in detail. So all the issues that, that Chris will talk about, the things that we had to think about that were part of the traditional Bible format, and especially in its modern form with these additional additives of all the numbers, we began to look at the Bible without all those things. And, you know, Chris helped us discover it's not just taking out chapter and verse numbers. There's issues all across the structure of the Bible. As he says, the Bible is a collection of different kinds of writings. So why, why is it in the order that it is? And um, what, are the, what is the structure within books? And in fact, some of the books have been separated um, within a single book, and so they can be put back together. So we had Chris out, and uh, he did an, a kind of an opening address to this group and kind of launched for us what the agenda would be for this multi-year project 
to design a Bible that actually invites people into the real Bible. Yeah, I love that. So you're you're kind of a little bit starting with like a blank canvas, a blank canvas in some ways, right? Like you kind of went through this process of all right, what's sacred, what's not, what can we play around with, for lack of a better word, and what needs to stay the same. Obviously, no text uh, taken away or added or anything like that. But you guys discovered that there were a lot of design decisions that you could make for uh, maximal readability and. Uh, you know, things that would display the text more authentically, more naturally, those sorts of things. So what were kind of your guiding principles or guide rails um, or your priorities even in, in designing these new editions? As you pointed out, the goal isn't just to take things out, because if you take out the chapters and the verses and the section headings, all the other um, cues that people are used to um, telling them how to navigate through the Bible, without those, you know, isn't the only option just to cast the readers adrift on a sea of unorganized type? And the answer is no, because not only is there smoke, there's signals. And let me just use one book as an example. Um, there are what I would call natural literary features, literary signals in every book of the Bible. We have to appreciate that all the books of the Bible were created at a time when there wasn't publishing as we know it today. Um, you couldn't put in you know, little graphics and things that say chapter one and so forth. So you had to do all this within the text of the book. And that's all there for us. So let's think about the book as, of, of Matthew just as an example. If you read it um, on its own terms, one thing you notice is that it goes back and forth between narrative, which is stories, and, and discourse, which is speeches. Uh, for example, the Sermon on the Mount, everyone recognizes as a major unit within Matthew even though it's divided into three different chapters. Um, people might also be familiar with what's called the Olivet Discourse, when Jesus answers the question of the disciples, what will be the signs of your coming in the end? But those are just two of five long sermons or speeches that Jesus gives in the book. And in between, there's stories. And if you look at those discourses or speeches, you notice that at the beginning of each one, Matthew says, the disciples came to Jesus. Or the disciples gathered to Jesus and asked him a question. And each one ends with Matthew saying, after Jesus had finished saying these things, he went on to do such and such. And the last one ends, after Jesus had finished saying all these things. There's hmm. a lot of intentionality there. This isn't just the narrator saying, let's get back to the story. <laughs> these are signals. And if you look at the narrative sections that precede each discourse, you recognize that these episodes, these stories, illustrate a theme that the discourse then elaborates. For example, in the second section of the book, you see Jesus healing the sick, raising the dead, cleansing the lepers. And then uh, in the discourse, he says to his disciples, I'm going to send you out to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, and here's how you need to do that. Hmm. So these are really pairs, narrative discourse pairs, that share a theme. Uh, there's a genealogy at the beginning and the story of Jesus' um, death and resurrection at the end. But these five narrative discourse pairs are the core of the book. And it's no accident that there's five of them. Uh, Matthew is a Jew writing for Jews and five books. You know, what does that say to you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Portraying Jesus as the new Moses. Hmm. But you're not going to see any of this if you see Matthew as a book that has 28 chapters. 
that just flattens and homogenizes the material. And you're reading, you know, discourses in pieces. Um, you, you don't see how the stories are all in the same theme. So to me, it's a very clear illustration of how not only do you have to take out the smoke, but you have to recognize the signals. And then our goal was, how would we display and highlight uh, these signals to readers in the edition? So you guys did a huge task with finding these, these literary breaks. And it was a massive project as you go through every book of the Bible. You guys also did some creative work in the area of the order of the books of the Bible, too. And we've talked about that on other shows, and <laughs> we'll get into that in more detail. But kind of at a high level, talk to us about it, you know, what point you decided that you were going to mess with the structure and really kind of mess people up who had maybe as uh, kids growing up in church learned the books of the Bible. Right. And I think it begins not just with the order of the books, but the um, the borders of the books, because um, there are several longer works in the Bible that were divided into parts simply because scrolls of the time couldn't accommodate a work that long. So, for example, um, the the books that we know as First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, that's one long work. In Hebrew, it fit on two scrolls. When it was translated to Greek, it expanded and had to go on four scrolls. But that's why we have four books instead of one, simply the publishing technology. Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah is a single work. Uh, Luke-Acts is a single work. Um, so you had limitations of publication technology that divided them into pieces, and then other considerations um, changed the order. So Luke and Acts, one volume, one, one book in two volumes. Um, but people said, hey, Gospels are the life of Jesus. You know, don't get me wrong. Jesus is the center and climax of the whole Bible. It's all about Jesus. So I understand why people put the Gospels together. But they separated out Acts to put them together. And they put John in between Luke and Acts. <laughs> you know, Luke is still unhappy that that happened to his two-volume right, yeah. work. <laughs> Wedged it in there. Yeah. Um, so there's that traditional element of um, putting the stories of Jesus together. I totally get why that was done. Um, and then the same principle was followed. Let's put all the letters together, uh, not realizing that there are, there are four different streams in the New Testament, four distinct constituencies that are being addressed. You have Jews, you have Greeks, you have Romans, you have um, kind of the, what they call the Johannine literature, John, the letters of John. Um, which is addressing a more cosmopolitan um, group. And so we thought, well, why don't we just put those together? And one thing that was very helpful was research, um, research that we did that showed that the books of the Bible were not in a fixed order until the advent of printing in the early 1500s. So for three quarters of the, um, the Bible's life, I say the full Bible, Old and New Testaments, Three quarters of his life, the books were not in a fixed order. So we said, you know what? Um, there's no reason to keep this fixed if it's a disservice to people. So we put Luke and Acts back together as a single book and paired it with Paul's letters because they worked together. Luke traveled with Paul on his journeys. 
um, put Matthew with uh, Hebrews and James because those focus on um, the Jewish community and so forth. I think you guys explain all this very well in the immersed material. But somebody had to say, you know, this isn't sacred. Um, book mm-hmm. boundaries, book order is not sacred. Mm-hmm. We're actually bringing the Bible back closer to what it's always been and farther away from what it recently has become. So multiple years into this project, you guys have spent forever going book by book. I think it was uh, about four years, wasn't it? It was 2003 yeah. to 2007. Okay. So, you know, Chris will go into a book, he'll investigate it like he uh like he outlined like he did for Matthew, find the literary structures, you guys format them, all this stuff, this huge long process, and you finally published the books of the Bible. Then what happened? I think there were two different levels to the reception. And I got to see the level of what I would call astonishing enthusiasm. And people just loved it. They were um, excited about it. And I've got a collection of, of hundreds of um, sort of glowing reviews. Let me just um, share a few of them. Uh, one person said, I've been a reader of the Bible all my life, but after reading just a few pages without chapters and verses, I was amazed at what had been missing all these years. This is kind of the language that always came out, amazed. And I always remember the person who said, um, I knew it was really important to understand Paul. I mean, he wrote half the books of the New Testament. You got to understand Paul, right? So I tried really hard. I even took a seminary course on Paul and I didn't get him. But when I read his letters in the order in which they were likely written with brief explanations of when and how and why they were written, I got him. I got Paul. Um, And so I'll I'll admit, I honestly expected this to sweep the planet when we did it, (laughs) especially seeing this kind of feedback. Um, But it hasn't yet. Um, We're still working on that. Uh, But I think the reason it hasn't yet is that people still have this answer in their mind to the question, what is the Bible and what are we supposed to do with it? You think about it, there's been a 500, nearly 500 year history now with the modern reference Bible. And people have become used to it, not just in their lifetimes, but it goes back over centuries. And we're trying to change that, to change people's perception, as you say, Chris, of what is the Bible and what am I supposed to do with it? And I think we need to be persistent and, and your strategy is the right one. Take it to the people, let them experience it. And they overwhelmingly love it. I mean, there were other reasons, not those reasons why people were opposed to this uh, to some degree at the beginning. But I think it's it's going to just roll as more and more people experience it, have great Bible experiences, because we know that in large number, we know from the Bible research, they're not. People are struggling with the Bible, struggling to read it and understand it, not sure that it's for them today. And I think they need a new Bible experience. And we have to press on with what will be a longer term cultural change. And I think the persistence will win the day. In our late latest episode with Dr. Chris Smith, we talked about the thinking and the philosophy behind readers' Bibles this new category of Bibles that takes away all the modern additives and instead displays the Bible's natural literature. Today, we're going to discuss what that means for how we actually interact with the text. If reference Bibles lead us into a certain way of engaging with scripture, one that's often characterized by information and speed, 
What do readers' Bibles encourage? But let's talk about the benefits of a single column. Is it just cosmetic? Is it just like, oh, it's easier on the eyes? Or are there, you know, some more substantive ramifications that come into play with a single column? If you open a modern reference Bible, two-column Bible, one thing you'll notice right away is everything looks the same. Yep. Poetry, prose, letters, proverbs, prophecy, what it doesn't matter. Everything looks the same because it's just two columns of text with these numbers down the page. And so you can't really see what the different kinds of books are. So the immediate benefit to a reader's Bible, which is in a single column, is that right away you can see, oh, this is poetry. And your brain immediately switches gears and says, now I'm reading something poetic. It's emotional. It's metaphors. And now I'm reading something that looks like a letter. I can see it right off the bat because across the top of the page, you can see who it's addressed to, who it's from. It looks like a letter or it looks like a story or it looks like a prophecy. You can see the kind of book it is right away. So like within a nanosecond with a reader's Bible, you're immediately on a better footing to understand what it is you're reading. So let's take a particular example. Um, a major chunk of the Bible. It's amazing, really, how much of the Bible is written in the poetic form. And if you can't see the poetry well, then you're immediately on a, doing, um, it's a harder job to try to figure out how the poetry is working. And especially in the First Testament, right, all the song books, Psalms, Song of Songs, Lamentations, the prophecy books, this is all poetic material. It's written in poetry. So the way Hebrew poetry works is especially helped by a single column setting. So Hebrew poetry is written with two lines that typically work together, sometimes three, but almost always two. And the first line makes a statement. The second line will do a whole variety of things. It will talk back to the first line. It will reinforce it with other language. Uh, sometimes it makes it stronger. Sometimes it adds a question. So there's a whole bunch of things that go on, and it helps so much to see the full line of the Hebrew poetry across the page. The problem with a two-column page is the column isn't wide enough to let you fit the whole line in, so therefore they have to indent it. And then when you have to indent again for the second line, you don't want it to match the first indent with just a runover line, so you indent it at a different distance. So now you've got indents happening all down the page. Some are for second lines of poetry. Some are for runover lines that are too long. And sometimes a single line has to run over two or three times. So you have all these levels of indents. And the net effect is you look at poetry in a two-column Bible, it's just a mess of indents. Nobody <laughs> is going to sit there and try to figure out which indent is this. Is this the second line of Hebrew poetry? They don't know that. But when you look at a reader's Bible, you can immediately, without even having to think about it or know anything about Hebrew poetry, you can see that there are two lines working together and you read them together. So it's a lot of this design with the Bible stuff is just intuitive stuff that comes to you naturally and immediately. You don't even have to work at it. And the two column Bible just messes that all up. Yeah, and, and I'm a super visual person, so I, I think this example that we've given of kind of the crazy mess of indentation is easier to maybe see visual visually. So I'll put a, a 
kind of compare and contrast picture into the show notes. So, so our listeners can kind of see what we're talking about there. So Alex, you mentioned uh, at the beginning, the famous phrase, the medium is the message. I think another way of saying that is that the forms and the content are inextricably linked. Can we unpack that a little bit? I think sometimes if you picture the Bible as just a book of content, it doesn't really matter how it's presented. It's as long as it has the right words in there somehow, right? We're going to get it. And the form is irrelevant. But actually, if you believe in God as creator and the creation matters, then I think God intended the world for form and content to work together. So when you look at the form of something, it should help in the communication of the content. This is what Marshall McLuhan was getting at, that when you change the medium, you really are messing with the message. And when you, when you make sure that the form is working with the content so that they're together sending signals to your brain that reinforce each other, that just strengthens the communication overall in a really big way. And that's what thoughtful Bible design can do for the content of the Bible. Seeing poetry, seeing letters, collecting books the right way, designing the page well, all of that form helps strengthen your understanding of the content. So yeah, it's a huge point and something I think Bible publishers just don't think about enough. So we've made some major changes, obviously, to the Bible's format with Immerse. And what are some of the kind of fundamental practical changes uh, and shifts that we're seeing in, in how people end up interacting with the text? Yeah, you know, we're, the, we're called the Institute for Bible Reading. So we've staked our, our ground on the fact that the Bible was created to be read. And we've made study the number one thing to do with the Bible. And we actually think that that's reversed, that yeah. the right order of things is to read first. I think that's what the authors of the Bible itself would have wanted from us. Read first. That's what any author expects from their audience, is that you will read their entire work. And then if you want to go back and do study, great. But then you've already, you're already doing your study in the context of having read the whole thing. So reading is the first and most natural thing to do with the Bible. And then study can be really great, but it's in the context of knowing the whole work, understanding what the storyline is, if it's narrative, what the poem is or the song lyric is, what the whole thing is headed toward, where the letter, what the impact of the letter is. Study comes second. And we just don't talk about Bible reading enough in our Christian culture. We need to be talking about Bible reading. It's the lost art that's been uh, is ripe, I think, for being rediscovered. I think I agree. And I think usually it's flipped. And I saw a perfect example of that. Somebody posted something on Facebook recently where their family is was reading Messiah together and talking about the joy of having finished the whole New Testament in eight weeks. And somebody, you know, added a little comment and said, oh, yes, but don't forget. The highest you know, form of engagement with the Bible is study. And so, you know, really saying basically to this person, you're, you're you know, you're just what you're doing is, is, is kind of flimsy. And if you're really serious about the Bible, then then you're going to study it. And, you know, a lot of that perception comes from a single statement in the Bible from, you know, the original King James Version 
Study <laughs> to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And I know that because I was in a yeah. lockup. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and so that's where we where where we all started. But this whole this whole notion that study is something very much other than reading. And there's there's a lot of, I think, uh, exploration that needs to be done, even when we think about what do we mean by study. And, you know, the, the importance of this is that there are practical ramifications for it. There are people that are not study oriented. Uh, they never liked school or they never liked the way they learned in their pedagogical system. And so they're invited to come to a Bible study. Everything is a study, 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 study. And the, the whole concept of just reading, reading is study. And mm -hmm. um, so I think we need, we need to return to that. I've always thought of Bible study as like you come to the text with an agenda of maybe extraction. So, so you read a chapter, maybe you read two chapters, you extract information, you extract theology and knowledge, and then you apply it. Like you have, you come to the text kind of ready to have this specific set of things that you're going to take away from it. Right. And I feel like with reading, if you, if you just sit down to read and absorb an entire work on its own terms with no agenda, um, that's kind of a different thing, right? Like you're, you're just kind of submitting yourself to the agenda, uh, the agenda of the authors and reading through the entire work with the knowledge that you can come back and maybe have that, more study-minded agenda later, but with the the groundwork laid, I guess, of having just read and just kind of submitted yourself to it and and see uh, what it has for you. I guess does that make sense? Yeah, I I think totally. And, and it reminds me of what C.S. Lewis said. He said the obligation of a reader to any work of literature, not just the Bible, is to receive yeah what the author wrote, not to use it. You dishonor yeah. the author if you go in with an agenda to use it for your own ends to begin with. Yeah. Now, maybe after you've received it, you want to do something else with it and learn in detail or in depth in a particular way, do a word study. But your first obligation is just to receive what they've written. And that means sitting back and just letting it wash over you. And yeah. I think we, we do. And I think your language is very interesting, Paul, about getting clutched up. Um, about this, you know, charge of not taking seriously the study of the Bible. Actually, it's when we study that we kind of get tense and clutched up about, I have to find something there. And extraction is a good word too, Alex. And I think we've lost the joy of experiencing the Bible because we think it's wrong or weak or insubstantial to just read it. But that's what it was meant for. There's a lot of, there's a lot of fun that happens in the Bible. There's humor in the Bible. And if you're studying, right, you're just all like an academic exercise. And if you just receive it, it's like, can you imagine Paul writing a letter to a church and, and somebody standing up to say, yep, today we're going to look at Colossians 1 verses 1 through 5, and then come back next week and we'll, we'll read some more, you know, and we're going to just unpack this opening. It was a letter to a church. Yeah. They read the letter. They received it as a letter. And that's what we have to get back to with the Bible is back to our first principles. And that is what does, what was the Bible when it was originally made and how was it received and experienced? That's the way to Bible renewal is to get back to that kind of an experience. There's a whole new world of Bible experience 
ready to be um, discovered by people. And I think they're ready for it because they're tired of this Bible and the old ways of referencing and working with it simply don't capture their imaginations. It doesn't. So, so there's nothing to lose. And I think everything to gain by rediscovering the Bible in its, on its own terms. And that's what a reader's Bible gives you. If you'd like to continue helping more people find out about the Bible Reset podcast, uh, you can leave a rating or a review in the Apple Podcasts app or wherever you listen to podcasts. As always, this show is brought to you by Changemakers, our community of donors who give monthly gifts of any amount to help us create resources that change the way people read the Bible. If you appreciate this podcast and you'd like to support our work, you can learn more at instituteforbiblereading.org slash changemakers. That's going to do it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next one.